Hello, one and all, and welcome to yet another exciting episode of The Partial Historians. Sitting right next to me is a radiant woman in green. <gasps> Dr. Greenfield. Indeed. <laughs> it's I. <laughs> and I am your usual nutbag of a host, mm. Dr. Radness. <laughs> mm. So evocative an image. <laughs> now, I say it with dignity. <laughs> <laughs> so we're in the process of looking at the history of Rome from the founding of the city. Yes. And in the last couple of episodes, we began to look at one of these key issues um, that's going to play out for about another 200 or so years. Yeah, so probably about, what, another 500 podcasts? <laughs> <laughs> we'll be old women by Yeah, then. exactly. Um, and that is the struggle of the orders. Mm. And this is a competition that is that is cropped up. Maybe competition's not the right word. I was going to say, yeah, I feel like um, that terminology. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not a competition. Um, but a class warfare, if you like, between the patricians, this uh, emerging body of aristocratic... Um, yeah. politically powerful groups based on families yeah. and the plebeians. Um, the other uh, citizens. <laughs> everybody else. Yeah. Well, who is, um, everyone else is citizens. Yeah. Citizen yeah. farmers, yeah. Uh, city citizens who don't have political clout. Yeah. Um, and they make up the bulk of Rome's population. Yeah. So we, we're really seeing the, the very first stages of this. So the la- we ended the last episode where... Very excitingly, we had just had the first secession, where the plebeians say, let's get out of here and make our own city kind of place-like thing. I cannot cannot abide by this city and the way it treats me any longer. I'm going off to found my own. We fall in for your promises and band-aid solutions for a really long time now. (laughs) (laughs) No more. No more. Um, And so we got to the point where, in in my account, because I'm following Livy, um, the patricians uh, who remain behind are quite anxious to restore domestic peace at any cost. And so they send out one Menenius Agrippa. And Agrippa decides to tell the story to the plebeians to try and sort of win them over to his point of view. May I relive the account of oh, the story? Oh, please do. I believe okay. it's quite concise, is it not? It is relatively concise. This is the story. At a time when the members of the human body did not, as at present, all unite in one plan, but each member had its own scheme and its own language, the other parts were provoked at seeing that the fruits of all their care, of all their toil and service, were applied to the use of the belly. So in other words, when he says nervous, he's talking about like arms, legs, you know. Oh, yeah. the fable is about the Roman people as being different parts of the body. Yeah, yeah. The Roman state is made up of all these different parts of the body. Oh, okay. And all the different parts of the body are getting upset that they're all working towards, you know, getting food and stuff. But the sustenance, it seems to be all about the belly. Like it's, it's going Ooh, to the belly. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so. And that the belly, meanwhile, remained at its ease and did nothing but enjoy the pleasure provided for it. On this they conspired together, that the hand should not bring food to the mouth, nor the mouth receive it if offered, nor the teeth chew it. While they wished by these angry measures to subdue the belly through hunger, the member themselves and the whole body were together with it reduced to the last stage of decay. From thence it appeared that the office of the belly itself was not confined to a slothful indolence, that it not only received nourishment, but supplied it to the others, conveying to every part of the body that blood on which depend our life and vigour by distributing it equally through the veins after having brought it to perfection by digestion of the food. 
Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's, 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 a, it's a good spin. Yeah. <laughs> I'll say that. Look, man. Yeah. Give that guy, like, a television screen, put him in front of a crowd, <laughs> let him go wild. <laughs> Politician uh, for the ages. Yeah. So that's the succinct version of the fable that, uh, that Livy provides, that Agrippa apparently told. Uh, in case you're wondering, the belly are the patricians. <laughs> Surprise! Sorry, the belly is the patricians. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> the patricians yeah. are mostly made up of stomach. Yeah. Um, they yeah. seem to be doing nothing and just sitting around and enjoying Enjoy. life. And everybody else is doing all the hard work. Yeah. yeah. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, so what, what does Dionysius have to say? Look. Probably a lot more, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dionysius. Yes. Um, How I don't... you love to be vivid. <laughs> Concision is not one of his strong suits, yeah. let's put it that way. <laughs> um, so Agrippa Menius, uh, you know, he gets up at the urging of the Senate and he speaks. Mm. And he prefaces this by saying, I do not think it easy for me in a brief exposition of my views to advise you what ought to be done. Mm. On the contrary, a speech of some length is necessary in order to show these among you, or those among you, who are opposed to the accommodation that they contradict themselves, if, while intending to frighten you by playing on blah, 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 uh, etc. Yeah. Et <laughs> so, I feel and... like Dionysius feels like there's a need for a long speech. <laughs> Look, you know, it's quite long. Mm. I'm not going to read it out. Yeah. You just read out, Livy. That yeah. was it. Yeah. You're done. Um, all I right. can move on with my life. Okay. <laughs> um, Menenius starts by saying, look, the plebs are crazy. Okay. <laughs> they don't use reason. They use passion and frenzy. Ooh. Um, so given that, we're going to have to deal with them in a very particular way. Um, <laughs> Oh, so he's not talking to the plebeians at this point? No, he's talking oh, to the Senate. Sorry. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. He starts off by talking to the Senate. Right. Um, and so he also was like, but let's keep in mind that, you know, they're crazy in very particular ways and, <laughs> and we should be kind to them despite their madness. Um, <laughs> the humbler citizens, plebeians, grew dis- disaffected towards you because of those who treated their misfortunes as neither fellow citizens nor men of self-restraint should. And they withdrew from the city. Um, But they haven't done anything else besides that. They haven't created any mischief. And we should consider that um, when we think about how we're going to deal with them. They've really done what is the most honourable thing for them to do, given the fact that they're so upset. Snaps to the plebeians. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not only that, we do need to be careful because we're being besieged right now on all sides by the Aquians, the Volsci, the Sabines, and the Hernicans. Hernicians? Hernicians. Hernicians? Hernicians. I can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> Four different enemies um, are, are currently besieging our lands. And so we're stuck inside our city and we can't sow our seeds and our farmhouses are being plundered. And our cattle is being driven off as booty. And our slaves are deserting us. <laughs> Sounds and like things are pretty dire. <laughs> so we really need to consider how we're going to get the plebeians back on side. Yeah, okay. Um, important, important. So, um, and then he says things that are quite curious. Like, no one amongst us, surely, is of so cruel a nature as to not have his heart touched at seeing the suffering of the plebeians. And to feel some sympathy for their misfortunes. And I think, mm, I think uh, Appius Claudius Sabinus <laughs> might not be at the meeting. No, that's right. Either he, or he is, and everybody's just like looking at him all of a sudden, being like, "You're a dude." <laughs> uh, you know that that kind of thing. No, I like it. Um, 
And then he sort of illustrates the difficulty of like this whole situation. He's like, it's going to be very hard. Um, if we do not grant them every one of their demands, isn't it the case that we'll just have them as enemies? Um, or they... not have them at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Won't they just become our enemies if we don't agree to their demands? Yeah. But on the other hand, if we agree to their demands, um, our country and our constitution will be lost, destroyed by our own hands. Wow. So, okay. you know, we've got a bit of a dilemma. I love, I love how we're going to destroy our own country <laughs> if we stop enslaving people for debt who've been away fighting for the country. Can you imagine <laughs> if people came back from fighting in World War II and were like, hey, nice job. Mm. BTW, seize your house. <laughs> <laughs> Salzburg. Yeah. Collateral. Yeah, exactly, um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, on the one hand, it's like they'll become our enemies if we don't do something. Um, and we'll destroy ourselves if we do do something. Mm. Yes. The, quite the dilemma. Yeah. So, in any case, that's that's kind of where he's going. Um, well, he does have a little bit of a conclusion as well. I've skipped a lot of his speech. Yeah. Um, well, considering that my guy, my guy, Menenius, is already talking to the plebeians. Yeah, And yeah. saying, you see... The fable is like us. Yeah, I haven't even gotten to the fable. The fable hasn't even happened yet in Dionysius. Um, So he gets to the end of this speech and he's like, okay, guys, this is what I think we should do. We need to send an embassy to the plebeians, consisting of persons whom they have the greatest confidence in. Mm. And I advise that those people be invested with power to just come to terms with the plebeians without having to consult the Senate. Okay. I think this is important, guys. Right. Yeah. No more negotiation stuff. Yeah. Just send these guys out and be like, they represent the Senate and yeah. the decision they make is binding on the I Senate. I think that's a good call because it feels like the Senate has been avoiding this conversation for <laughs> a really long time. It seems like they're not capable of having that exactly, conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's his advice. Um, and so, and then we all know how the story ends because then he gets selected as one of the people who can be trusted to talk to the plebeians. <laughs> and he goes in with his human body fable. You, speechy guy. <laughs> <laughs> you were quite convincing. I nominate you to go and talk yeah. to them. Um, now, yeah. interestingly, I, w- I would like at this point to bring in some secondary source criticism. Oh, please do. Oh, please yes. do. Um, so Drummond talks about um, the fable of meninus. Meninius as an accretion from Greek literary or philosophical sources. Mm. Yeah, and then he refers to this idea that there is um, the Menenii family go into an early political decline. And ah. so, do you so, think this is where that Livius got the idea that he wasn't originally a patrician? Perhaps, because mm. of course. The na- uh, not that it's the same thing exactly because it's not the same family I'm sure but if we look at a later Agrippa that I know mm. he was from the equestrian class mm. 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 anyway that's well the things the things yes um, so we've got this idea that the Menenii family goes into an early political decline yeah. and Menenius Agrippa's role has been established through this fable because it implicitly upholds and justifies patrician hegemony and right, so yeah. it implies that the family, despite their political decline, is actually a bastion for early patrician values and leadership. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So part of this is sort of literary tradition of building up the family. This is, this is probably the, the hard thing about these, these later first century BC sources that we're relying on in terms of understanding this conflict. By the time they're writing, 
the difference between a patrician and a plebeian is not as clear cut. Quite minor, you know. Mm. And there's a lot of intermarriage. Like you know, there's no, there's not necessarily people. Yeah, you know, people might be, people might have plebeians in their family tree. Um, it's and it's really, it really comes down to a, a difference that almost doesn't really matter <laughs> anymore because it's like okay, so you have, you know, if you're a patrician, you are able to like I'm, I'm sure still wear the fancy shoes. And, yeah. <laughs> I should hope so. Yeah, and you and you have access to like a few archaic priesthoods that no one else does. But before. I imagine if you're a very well-to-do plebeian, yeah. there's going to be some very fancy shoes that you could wear that don't quite infringe upon the fancy oh, shoes I'm of sure. the patrician, yeah. but are very close and could be easily mistaken in the wrong light. Uh, exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's that's what I mean. It's, it's like the difference between them. It's like so big. Whoop! The patricians can have their little archaic priesthoods, and that's about it. Everything else is pretty equal by the some time they're it, writing. Some of it, yeah, it just becomes like legal technicalities. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so to understand the distinction, like how you know how people became patricians, how people how patrician families fell out, how people you know maybe declined into a plebeian standing somehow. Like, it's just all this you know, it's all this stuff that's very hard to trace. And it's very hard to figure out. Well, and it and it's also positioned as the patrician being the desirable or the aspirational class. Exactly. Because yeah. We have very few instances where patricians move into the plebeian class, and when they do, there are always points of controversy and are mentioned. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So not from very... this period, I might add, dear listeners, but yeah. later yeah. on. It, it, I mean, it's all very confusing, these boundaries. And yes. to under, for them, for our sources, I mean, it's hard enough for us to understand, but for our sources to be trying to understand it <laughs> from their point of view... Well, they yeah. already have the complexities of the late Republic system yes. in mind as they're writing their history. Exactly. And they're trying to retrofit what they already know yeah. into an earlier period where the Romans are still trying to figure out how they do it. And so it's pretty clear that the struggle of the orders represents a challenge of definition. What does it mean to be patrician? Who gets to be patrician? And what does it really mean to be plebeian? And why can't the plebeians be different from what they are? Yeah, exactly. And and I feel like it I feel like it does make sense that as we talked about in a previous episode that this is um, as much as our sources would like to say, you know, that, well, the Senate's important nowadays, so the Senate's important that day, and, and this is important in that day, so nowadays, so that's important in that day, it, it, it really is probably much more fluid. Rome is by far from being a superpower at this point in time. So all these, all these things are probably actually not that big a deal in the... Everything is in flux. Yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, like, what is Rome at this point in time? It's not, <laughs> it's not this big superpower that has all this stuff to administer. So no, it's much, you know, it's all on a smaller scale, I think, than it sounds like it is. Because <laughs> mm, mm. the Romans obviously, you know... They're run, very small. They're yeah, very running small. from a time when they are a superpower, it all seems yeah. like much a bigger deal. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Totally, again, gone off on a tangent. No, 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 yeah. I think it's fine. Um, so we have this idea um, yeah. that uh, we've mentioned in a previous episode relating to the struggle of orders. But yeah. just to return to this, this yeah. idea of the debt struggle yeah. that the plebeians face. Exactly. This seems to be one of the key reasons for the Pavlian secession in 494-3. And that's why I actually find this quite a curious thing, because essentially the outcome of this secession, right? I mean, it's successful in that it's, mm. you know, basically like a kind of part mutiny, part strike, um, and it actually works. And therefore a lot of <laughs> actual, actually just interestingly in terms of the reception of this, it's been looked back, you know, in terms of like union movements and that sort of thing. It's like one of the first successful strikes in history, you know, like a, a thing to emulate and go back to, like in the 19th and 20th centuries. But that's by the by. 
Basically, this opens up the door for negotiations because they apparently see the meaning in Agrippa's fable and are not vastly offended <laughs> by it. Um, and so when, uh, when negotiations are opened up, the, what ends up happening is you have apparently the creation of this office, the Tribune of the Plebeians, mm. okay? um, which we will come back to um, in more detail later on. But the thing that I find curious is that this is not really a response to the ah. debt problem. Well, look, and so yeah, yeah, so this is where I'm going to disagree with you because okay. because this is a pretty common modern scholarly position to take, yeah. which is that is to suggest that there's an incoherence between the stated reasons for the first session, which yeah. is there's a debt crisis, yeah. and um, the economic distress at the basis of that, which culminates in what is a political solution, which is the creation of this new plebeian tribunate. Yeah, and people are like. How does how does having well, a tribune? Help? I get it's like no taxation without representation. <laughs> I, I get I get how it does connect somehow in that they have a set, you know they have someone representing their interests and someone who apparently has the power to uh, to veto um, the decisions of the magistrates. Hmm. But I still feel like there is. I, I'm sorry, I do still feel like they don't quite match up. Yeah, but so yeah. please explain for me oh, the reasons yeah. why. Okay, yeah. so. Um, so I'm going to go back to Drummond again. Okay. So Drummond positions um, this doubt around like the, yeah, the, the economic crisis yeah. versus the tribunate creation. Yeah. So, and he says, if debt bondage was a purely private transaction with no magisterial involvement, which it could be, yeah. the tribunate is unlikely to have been created specifically and principally to regulate it. Since, in the mid to late Republic, tribunes rarely intervened in the relations between individual citizens. Yeah. It may have been different in the early Republic, especially in the case of bondsmen, so mm. like going into debt of bondage. Yeah. Um, so becoming a quasi-slave to your creditor. Yeah. Uh, who were in no position uh, to assert their own rights in court. Mm. And I'm like, okay. So my problem with this is that, first of all, the analysis seems a little bit weak. Magistrates do appear to be directly involved and connected with debtor-creditor relations. And this is mentioned in Livy and Dionysius yeah. and Aulus Gellius. It definitely seems to be something that involved, the state is involved in. It's yeah. mentioned in multiple sources. Yeah. And it seems clear that it's precisely at the point of magisterial uh, intervention that they're to ensure the compulsion into slavery. Yeah. So you're supposed to go to the court to surrender yourself into this debt bondage. Yeah. Um, but if you don't, they will force you to. Right. Um, so do you think the veto comes in at that point? Is that Not the veto. Okay. So um, it's this point at which you go to the court with everybody assumes is your attention to surrender. Mm-hmm. You refuse to do so. Okay. And then the magistrate compels you to do the thing. Um, <laughs> the final price compels you. <laughs> yes, you will do it. Um, and it is that point that the tribune can intervene directly for a citizen. Right, yeah, yeah. So, and this is to do with the tribune's body. Yes, because it, it, apparently with the creation of the tribune, the plebs all like vow to you know to protect his body with their lives like to fight for his protection and his 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 person becomes sacrosanct. Yes. Yeah. So this is one of the key distinguishing features of the tribune of the plebs the fact that his body is inviolate. Yeah. And kind of like a vessel version, eh? Yeah. Uh, 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 uh. yeah. <laughs> nudge nudge wink wink. Um, shh, shh, don't get me started. That's um so yeah. the the plebeians take an oath. Mm. Um 
that says that they guarantee that the body of the Tribune is inviolate. Yeah. Um, and what this means for the Tribune is that his body is sacrosanct. Nobody can touch or interfere with his body. Yeah. Which means that there is a really physical component to his role. Yeah. He must... Uh, physically intervene yeah. and interpose himself into moments in order to protect people, which means he needs to be physically there. He can't just rub a stamp at things. No. You know, he's got to be following stuff I around. I on my behalf. Yeah, oh, yeah, damn yeah. it. It's not, it's not going to be enough. Yeah. Um, he's actually got to go there physically himself and follow up on the issue. Yeah. And at the point at which the citizens body is about to be interfered with yes um so being dragged off to become a bondage slave yeah um that would be the moment where the tribune gets involved yeah yeah. so the tribune comes to the court and hangs out and watches the proceedings and waits for the moment where the creditor is like well i'm claiming you as my slave and the magistrate's like i compel you uh to become a slave and the citizen is like no <laughs> don't do it <laughs> i will anything but anything that. tribune help me i call upon you for auxilium <laughs> um and this is the moment where uh traditionally the roman citizen body could often appeal or it's thought and we're not sure about the dates around these sorts of things it becomes sure. a bit murky yeah. but we think that the ability to appeal to the citizen body for auxilium for aid predates the creation of the tribune of the plebs yeah, position okay. so you can call upon the citizens in the area to help you out yeah see i see that i do see that connection like i, I get that part of it yeah. but i still i guess it's because it's not so much like I suppose perhaps saying it's incoherent is perhaps not fair in terms of if this is really the way that things played out. Like, mm. you know, and, and you know, I guess I have no reason to say that there isn't. But <laughs> if this is the way things played out, I guess I feel like once again, it's perhaps a move that's not going far enough. You know, I, like yeah. that perhaps may, yeah, you know, perhaps it would have been. Although, yes, representation is good, having this kind of power, you know, in your representative is good because, you know, you have the sacrosanct, you have the veto. That's all great. Um, and that's going to become very valued later on. Like, that's why the Tribune, you know, this, this particular office is going to become so desirable to some people. Mm. But I guess I still feel like that issue of debt still <laughs> Has lingers. not been really so. Yeah, and you could perhaps have done more... That I, I feel like I suppose I, more should I feel have been like, done to address Yeah, that. and it, I also suspect that what we get with the Tribune of the Plebs is a huge compromise. Yeah, perhaps, yeah. Like, it's not it's not what the plebeians would want initially. Yeah. It's not, but it's also not something that the patricians hate. True, and they can deal with it. Yeah. yeah, it's a negotiated compromise, and it limits the power very much so of the tribunate to actually protect citizens because there are only two tribune of the plebs. And that's what I mean. The, like, in I just, the whole I, city. I feel like it doesn't go far enough. No, it doesn't. Yeah. Uh, uh, from a plebeian perspective, definitely not. Mm. From a patrician perspective, I think they would have been willing to swallow it, yeah. which is why this is what we end up with. And I suppose, given the time that we're talking about here, like, you know, ancient world politics, it's actually probably impressive that you have this amount of people power anyway Mm. you know like it you know (laughs) even in you know democratic athens and that sort of thing it's still you know it's not that rome is a democracy but it is impressive that the people have managed apparently to accomplish you know anything like yeah yeah, yeah, (laughs) seriously like I, i know that sounds ridiculous but honestly for ancient world especially given the period we're talking about i am impressed 
by their ability to demand and receive anything. Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, so say snaps again. (laughs) (laughs) Nice work, plebs. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So to take this even further, um, Drummond also makes the point that the law made provision for the intervention of a champion of Vindex. Mm. And it again, it seems improbable that a permanent office, that would be the Tribune of the Plebs, should be established purely to deal with cases where condemnation appeared unjustified and no Vindex was forthcoming. Mm. So if you appeal to auxilium of the citizen bodies yeah. and no champion shows up to help you out, Ooh, um, <laughs> they're like, he's, he's, Drummond's basically saying, is a Tribune of the Plebs really going to be enough? And, you know, to yeah. solve that issue. And why would you bother? Um, well, Mary Beard, actually, um, she, you know, she, she dwells very heavily on the idea that, you know, the history of this whole encounter is, you know, probably, obviously, retrospective. In that, of course. You know, and she sort of talks about the fact that she doesn't really believe that at this point in time the Tribune would have had a veto to... to um, I don't think the Tribune had a veto till much later on. Yeah, exactly. She wouldn't. That you wouldn't have had a veto this early on, no. especially against any move. No, um, I think yeah. the the essential power that is yeah. created for the Tribune of the Plebs, yeah, in this first in yeah. this first session, is the sacrosanctity. Yeah, and that's pretty much all he's got. Yeah, he's got a body that he can interpose in a moment <laughs> you of. See the, you see this body. Yeah, you see this this glorious <laughs> uh, uh, body. And he can only use it when it seems like two people are about to come together in a violent way yeah. and one of those people needs help. And yeah. that person really needs to ask for help for him to intervene. Yeah, so so there's really a whole is... bunch of conditions around the exercise of his sacrosanct body anyway. Yeah, so it is, it is really baby steps because mm. eventually, and this is just... We, we will, of course, come back to this, but I just wanted to give you like, you know, a broader picture for a second, if I may, Dr. G. Um, Please. Yeah, the, the Tribune of the Plebs is going to become eventually notorious for being held by people who are out to implement radical reforms. Mm. Um, and so much so that people in the first century BC, um, you know, who are not too distant from the, you know, the historians that we're using, like Sulla, will try very hard to limit the tribunician power because it is so threatening. You know, eventually, eventually mm. this office is going to become something very contentious. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so I guess... Bring it up. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So I, I just want to flag that now, just mm-hmm. so people are aware that, obviously, as you say, this office is going to develop, it's going to have bells and whistles added, um, and that sort of thing, but it is going to be something This is, is the seeds of the beginning. Exactly, it is, yeah. and it's so early. Like, you know, I mean, I know, again, I know that it's not all bells and whistles yet, but, mm-hmm. yeah, it is... I, I, I'm quite I'm quite in awe. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I feel like one of the problems um, with our secondary interpretations of this situation is that they sort of underestimate the severity of the crisis that the plebeians are facing as well. Yeah, yeah. Hence why I suppose the the struggle continues. Yeah, like (laughs) the economic crisis provokes military revolt. Yeah. Um, And for this to happen, like things in terms of debtor slavery must have reached a critical point. Point. Absolutely. I mean, and, and it makes sense to me, because as, as you said, um, I can't remember this episode or another episode, but we have been talking about war for so long. <laughs> and I don't even like war. No, and yet, so you can kind of get an understanding <laughs> by looking at just our podcast titles <laughs> that it must have been a, re- you can see how it would have become such a problem that, you know, that, that people were getting into debt because they just weren't around to like tend to their property. Yeah. Home. 
do that kind of thing. And, like, this is a really first basic step for the plebeians. And we're talking about a politically disenfranchised class yeah. that is co-opted into military service, mm. um, forced to go into personal debt to service the service. <laughs> and then when they are unable to repay their debts, can be created as a quasi-bondage slave to their creditor. Yeah. And treated abysmally, not as a preferred slave or as an acquisition of property that could be sold on, but, like but as somebody who can be punished yeah. for their inability to repay their loan. And that's a, that's always a big thing with Romans, isn't it? Like, the fact that if you can be physically punished, like, mm. that says something about your status yeah. in the scheme of things. So because, I feel like, yeah. yeah, like, we can only guess at the extent of the severity of yeah. the exploitation that the patricians are engaging with against the plebeian class yeah. and reconciling themselves to. I think probably the biggest legacy at this point in time, because as we said, we can't really say how exactly effective or powerful the Tribune was at this point in time, although although obviously that's a, a good concession to have, the fact that they got the concession. I think the biggest legacy is probably the fact that they seem to have united and won. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, not one as much a huge as they achievement. to. But they know for the first, perhaps but now really they... for the first time, they know their power. That's yes. what I guess what I'm trying to get yeah, at. Yeah, yeah. They have an understanding that with their numbers and with their role in society, they can actually affect change. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that seems like a, a fairly cheerful note to end on. Huzzah! Huzzah! For the working class! Workers of the world, unite! <laughs> Rise up! <laughs> uh, all right, well... Join us next time, probably for, I suppose... Um, I'm more sure... details about the Tribunate, I Yeah, feel. I think there'll be more details uh, I've got a lot that. more I want to say about this. Fair these. enough, yeah. fair enough. Oh, yeah. yeah. You don't want to miss that one. <laughs>